The scripture today comes from Galatians 1, 1 through 10. Paul, an apostle, sent ne neither by human commission nor from human authorities, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the members of God's family who are with me. To the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to set us free from the present evil age, or according to the will of our God and Father, to whom by the glory forever and ever, amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you, the one you received, let him be accursed. For I, am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. Our uh, kids in, in this congregation in the K through 7 classes just finished a quarter. All of us just finished a teaching quarter and started a new one here in the last couple weeks. And their quarter was on the book of Acts. They studied uh, the spread of the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth, as Acts 1.8 uh, puts it. And uh, they learned about people like the Apostle Paul who went about preaching on these preaching journeys or missionary journeys. Um, we got a lot of folks gone today, but kids, if you were in the class, do you remember how many preaching journeys Paul went on? Three, good. Three preaching trips, three preaching journeys. Um, what did he preach? The gospel, exactly right. He preached the gospel. Somebody said God. He preached God's gospel. He preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. And everywhere he went, it didn't matter whether he was talking to pagans who knew nothing about Yahweh, the God of the Bible, or whether he was talking to uh, Jews, Hebrews, who, whose heritage included the Scripture what we would today call the Old Testament, the Torah, the prophets, the, the, the writings that God had given the Hebrew people throughout the ages. No matter whether he was in one audience or the other, Paul always ended up talking about the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the word gospel means good news. Some of the versions we use will translate it uh, good news when we and others find the word gospel. And that's a perfectly good kind of literal straightforward trans, uh, translation. It's the good news that God has come into our world. He didn't just leave us here struggling. Our world is, is stuck in strife and injustice and immorality and, and death. It's going nowhere fast. We've sort of run the whole thing into the ditch with no way out. And God comes into the world in the form of Jesus Christ to rescue us from this self-imposed ruin. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That's the message. And... Um, he really cared about it. Um, he was willing to pay the ultimate price of his own son dying on the cross. And then when he was resurrected, that death, burial, and resurrection, which in 1 Corinthians 15 is called the gospel, that launches this universal project of new creation by which we and, and everything else in the universe, in the cosmos, is going to be ultimately reconciled to God. And that's good news indeed, because we were, human beings are in a helpless situation. We have no answers. We don't really know what we're doing. We don't know how we got here. 
Um, and God tells us those answers. And He comes into the situation to deliver us, to save us, to create us afresh. And He does it through and at the cost of His only Son. And so that is, that is gospel. That is good news. All right. What if I said, let's stand and sing right now? Wouldn't that be, you'd be like, that would be, amen. Yeah, we could. Not too hearty there, Greg. Not too hearty. Um, here, here's the problem. Almost immediately in the New Testament era, you know, so you get this wonderful message about hope, and you, you, you didn't deserve it, you didn't, you, you didn't see it coming, and here it is, from helplessness to hope, and almost immediately in the New Testament era, the meaning of the word gospel gets distorted. Like, almost right out of the gate. The good news becomes much less good, we might say. Of course, Christians keep using the word gospel, but the contents begin to get altered. It gets twisted, it gets distorted. And as a result, the good news becomes not so good. Paul's letter to the Galatians uses the word gospel 11 times. It's, it's only six chapters long, and it uses the word gospel 11 times, four of which appear right here in this opening paragraph. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning, into, turning to a different gospel. And then he says, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And then he says this, just to make it clear, if we, or even an angel of heaven, were to come to you and preach a gospel that was contrary to the, to the original one, the one you heard when I first brought it to the churches of Galatia, a region in central Turkey, let that person be accursed. In other words, if it deviates at all, it's not the gospel. It's not the good news. It may be news, but it's not the good news that was originally brought. This is one of the earliest epistles written in the New Testament, Galatians. And there's some speculation, we don't know exactly when it was written, but we can narrow it down to a handful of years, and it's clearly one of the earliest ones written. So almost immediately after the good news is launched, is announced, its meaning gets distorted. They keep the word gospel, but what it means, the sort of range of meaning that travels with the word gospel, underneath the word gospel, gets morphed into something else. And that's really the problem we want to address for a few minutes this morning. All right? We want to, uh, and I want to show you something real quick, just so we, we keep this in mind the whole time. You're going to be reading the word gospel. I think most of the English translations in Galatians 1, 6 through 10 use the word gospel. It's the Greek word euangelion. They're going to translate it gospel. It literally means good news every single time. That's the meaning of the word, right? Here's the NLT, the New Living Translation. It kind of captures the sense a little better. You are following a different way that pretends to be the good news, but it's not the good news at all. Let, let God's curse fall on anyone, including us or even an angel from heaven, who preaches a different kind of good news than the one we preach to you. If you change the good news at all, you're making it less good. You can't change God's gospel and make it better. Any change from the gospel is not the gospel. It's a different kind of news. You've altered the message. And you've made it certainly less good. A, less good, a, a, a message that is not as good as it was. So th this morning what we want to do is, is talk about this problem of turning to a different gospel. Just to take a phrase straight out of uh, at least the ESV's rendering of Galatians 1.6. How do we keep the good... In the good news, folks, that's the question. How do we keep the good in the good news? That's the, 
the charge that we're going to examine from uh, pretty much Paul's epistle, his letter to the Galatian churches, our book of Galatians and our New Testaments. The calling to keep the good in the good news. So let's look at this charge, this, this calling, from both a negative and a positive perspective this morning. I want to I challenge us uh, robustly to reject all false gospels as a church, as individual Christians. And we want to um, fully embrace the true gospel. That's the two things we're going to talk about this morning. All right, so let's start with number one, rejecting false gospels. What's a false gospel? There's a short answer and a, and a little bit more expanded answer. The short answer basically is a false gospel is anything that we would substitute for the centrality of Christ crucified. Remember what Paul says to Corinth? When I came to you, I came to you with nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And over in chapter 15 of the same letter, that's at the beginning in chapter 1 and 2, over in chapter 15, kind of bookending the whole point of, 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 of the first Corinthian letter, he says, here's the gospel, that Jesus died for your sins, according to the scriptures, he was, he was buried, He was raised on the third day. That's the gospel. It's what He did for you. That's the good news. Now we could talk all day long about what the response to the gospel is. And I've many times heard preachers say, you need to preach the gospel. And they're, they're really talking about the human response to it. The gospel is the good news of what God did for us. It does have an appropriate response or you're not going to have any part of it. But that's not really the good news. The good news isn't, hey, here's 14 things you need to do. The good news is doing something can have some efficacy in the first place because of what God did at Calvary. That's the good news. Death, burial, and resurrection of Christ as a gift to us. And anything that we substitute for Christ crucified is a false gospel. Let me talk about a couple of them, not just pulling them out of my ear, but two that I think comes out of the text of Galatians. There are probably plenty of others. We're going to limit it to two this morning. The first of which we're going to call the transactional gospel. I know that's a, a word we don't use that much, but I'm going to explain why I think that's a good term, a good way to characterize this. A transactional gospel. And I believe this characterizes the faith of many Christians and has uh, through millennia. It's like it's a, an endemic temptation to us to, to morph the real gospel into this transactional system. We're still doing it in the name of Jesus. We're still calling it pious. We're still calling it the gospel. We're using all the Bible words. Uh, the, the heart may be right. And the intention is good. But it's still not the gospel if it's become this transactional uh, substitute. And what I mean by this is uh, the idea that our relationship with God, the relationship between humans and God, basically involves both parties bringing something that is of, of inherent worth to the other party. And if they both do that, God brings good stuff that we want, we bring good stuff that God's want, then we sort of sit down at a table and we come to a deal. It's a transaction. It's tit for tat. God gets what He wants. What he needs from us, we get what we want and need from him. It's good. That may be how capitalism works. That may be how much of the world works. Bartering this and bartering that, trading this for that, coming to an agreement. Compromise. It's a transaction at the end of the day. That is manifestly not how the gospel of Christ works. You're not talking about two equal parties. What do we have that God needs? If he needs it, exactly. Greg said it. Nothing. If he needs it, then how is he God? Creatures need things, not the creator. 
So let's talk about this one. So let's talk about the situation in Galatia. Let's back up a little bit and just sort of set the scene briefly. I want to survey what's going on in Galatia. We're not going to read all the texts involved because it would take too long. A lot of you, this will be a reminder for anyway. But basically, there are a group of Jewish Christians um, who are subscribing to what in chapter 2, verse 12, is called the circumcision party or the circumcision faction. I think the NIV puts it the circumcision group. It's a group of Jewish Christians who, are, um, who have been influenced by apparently some Jewish Christians from the outside who've come in or at least have exerted their influence in some way, and they are requiring uh, that, that Gentile Christians, their Gentile uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, must keep aspects of the law of Moses. They must keep aspects of what we would call the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures, in order to maintain their covenant relationship with God. In their view, justification before God requires both Jesus, they're Christians, both Jesus and works of the law. You're not going to have this relationship with God if you don't, yeah, Jesus is good. We understand Jesus, yes, he's the Messiah, that's good, check mark, boom, got that. Now, what really matters though, and what's you know, amiss in your lives, is that you Gentile Christians aren't keeping all the aspects of the law of Moses. Uh, chief of which was probably this idea of circumcision. And in case you're not familiar with what the Bible teaches about all of this, we're not talking about circumcision from a medical standpoint or something like that. Um, this is an old uh, religious uh, token, uh, a sign of a covenant that God made with Abraham, the great patriarch, the ancestor of the Hebrew people, back in Genesis 17, nearly at the beginning of the Bible. When he said, basically, I've made this covenant with you and your descendants, your offspring after you, who would become the Israelites later, known, known later as the Israelites, and I want every male born among you at eight days old to be circumcised. This is a sign of the covenant that I've made between you and the Hebrew people. That's the, the, the import of circumcision in this context. And these Jewish Christians are arguing that's still binding on Gentile converts. And um, Paul op opposes this requirement. Here in Genesis chapter 2, verse 3 and 5, I actually don't have the, all that there. I've got, uh, I think that's verse 5. Um, I took off some of it <coughs> to cut off minutes. Shree said when I got up a minute ago, it's 11.05. If you go to 12, that's 55 minutes. <laughs> I, but I did this before she said that, so props to me. We'll see. Um, it's always a crapshoot with me. I try to manage it. I just, no, nah, I'm not good at it. I, I admit it. To them, and the them here is those binding circumcision on their Gentile uh, brothers and sisters. To them, Paul says, we did not yield to this circumcision party, saying that the law of Moses must be bound on Gentile Christians. We did not yield in submission even for a moment so that, notice this phrase, the truth of the gospel might be preserved in you or for you. So Paul sees the truth of the gospel at stake. The core, the heart of the, of the good news of Christ is in jeopardy because of this idea that aspects of the law of Moses must still be uh, uh, observed and, and uh, followed by these Gentile converts who aren't Jews. Um, by the way, this phrase, truth of the gospel, there, there are two places in Galatians where it's used. This is the first of two occasions where Paul uses this to show that whatever's going on in Galatia, with the circumcision party and the Jewish Christians who are trying to bind these things on their Gentile uh, brothers and sisters, this is as serious as it could possibly be. The truth, the very truth of the gospel is at stake. All right, We're not talking about some minor deviation. You know what, that's a little dangerous. I'd watch. No, he's talking about truth and falsehood. That's the language the apostle uses, chooses to use here. 
We're talking about the whole ball of wax. We're talking about our standing with God. We're talking about the good news. The truth of it is what Paul's protecting in engaging this problem that develops in, uh, in, in the churches of Galatia. Uh, so it was expressed in circ- binding of circumcision. It was also expressed in the Jewish calendar and binding certain holy days on others who are, who are not Jews. They're converted to Christ too, but do we have to follow all that still? You can see that over here in Galatians 4, verses 9 to 10. At least it looks like that's what's being referred to. Paul writes in Galatians 4, 9, but now that you have come to know God, you've become Christians, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? Why would you go back? And he says, here's what I'm talking about. You're observing days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. In other words, if you're just going to, if you've reached Christ, remember what he argues? The old law was a a tutor or a pedagogos, a, a, a schoolmaster, a guardian, to bring people historically to Christ. And once Christ has come, once they've got, come to the point of faith, the law has, has served its purpose. And he says, I, maybe I'd wasted my time. You're still going, you're going back to all those holy days in the Jewish calendar. So whether it's circumcision or these holy days of the Jewish calendar, the point that is being made is that that these people who are in the circumcision party are, are binding something on you that's, that's bringing the, go- the very gospel into jeopardy. Now, I want to issue a, a caveat here, a, a very important one. I'm not suggesting that these Jewish believers, these Jewish disciples who are of the circumcision faction, who are of this mentality, I'm not suggesting that they are coming at, at it from a, a theology of works righteousness. I think it's, it's a very easy thing. People often say, well, they're just legalists and that's that. There's a lot of good evidence that these people also understood that, uh, you know, they're, they're heirs of the Jewish scriptures, our Old Testaments, that their very relationship with Yahweh was based on His loving kindness, that it was a gift. They don't believe that they can work their way to heaven, really, like on paper, all right? So uh, we need to be careful with that. I think a lot of people read Galatians and Romans through the lens of Martin Luther and John Calvin sometimes, and sometimes take that a bit too far. There's a bit of scholarship called the New Perspective that often has tried to correct this and, and highlight all those Old Testament passages that talk about the heart and loving God with all your heart and, and grace. and That's not brand new in the New Testament. So I'm not saying these people really have a theology of legalism and they think they can earn, they believe the way it works, they can earn their way to heaven. They, I don't think they probably think that. Um, yet, their on-the-ground emphasis, and here's, here's where it's really relevant to us, Their on-the-ground emphasis appears to have been more on the acts people must do, on the obedience people must bring, than it is on what Christ had done for them at Calvary. Do you hear me? It's about emphasis. Yes, we need to be holy people who are obedient. But is the basic story of the gospel, is that it? Here's the good news. Here's 400 things you need to do or you'll go to hell. That's how a lot, I was cruising some websites the other day for somebody else in a different state trying to recommend a church at a place I'd never been, at least in several decades. So I didn't really know the lay of the land. All I got to go on was a website. One of these websites I came across, it's almost like the upshot was, let me tell you 4,000 reasons you are just awful and you're probably going to be nuked. Well, let me get some of that. You know what I mean? That, that's not the gospel. It's good news. It's real news. It involves real threats. Real, real danger and real salvation. It's mature. It's about grown people. 
talking about real things. There is something to be afraid of. But the, you don't lead with the stuff you got to do to get it uh, any more than a rescue story. You know, if somebody's rescued from some dire, a ship is sinking and somebody's floating on wreckage out in the, the ocean, about to die, and somebody miraculously almost <clears throat> comes into the situation and throws them a life ring, the headline on Sunday isn't going to talk about how they, they were so uh, devoted when they grabbed the life ring. That's not going to be the story. It's going to be the person who took it to them or threw it to them, who saved them. Yeah, they got to grab a hold of it. But we've sometimes made that the story. And so I think it's about, about emphasis. It, the real story is what Christ did for us at Calvary. And it's, if that kind of emphasis, if the opposite emphasis goes on long enough, it can result in a kind of default view of our, relig- our, our relationship with God that is transactional. We start thinking the real thing is whether you bring your thing, because that's what God's looking for. It's, a, it's really about whether you bring your thing to the table. That's all we talk about. And I want to tell you something. You talk about something long enough, it rewires the way you think. Your theology and your practice as a church and what you think makes for faithfulness or unfaithfulness and everything else is going to look like that. And your psychology is going to look like that. Your demeanor is going to reflect that. So... Uh, it's not true that humans and God meet halfway. You know, God brings His good things to the table. He brings forgiveness and salvation. We bring our good things to the table that God needs, holiness and obedience. And if God sees what He needs, He gets what He needs, then there's a good transaction, you know, voila, salvation. That is a a biblically skewed way of looking at things. And much of what Paul does in the book of Galatians and by that, for that matter, elsewhere in all of his writings in the New Testament, is to explode that very idea, to, to blow it to smithereens. So look with me now to Galatians 3, verses 10 and 11. Here's what Paul says. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Why is that? Well, he quotes Old Testament scripture. Cursed be everyone who does not by, abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. How many here have abided by every single thing in the book? Who's that person? Where's that person? They didn't exist under the Old Testament you know, era. They don't exist now. That's why he says that's basically the path of doom. Here's the reason. It is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. That, that never has really worked, because nobody keeps God's law, God's standard, perfectly. So this is an idea that's that's dead in the water right from the get-go. And and if our message is basically this transactional kind of gospel where we focus mostly on what we're supposed to do and sort of take what God did at Calvary as, well, of course that, you know, sort of move on real quick. No, that's the story, really. If we do that, what's going to happen is we're going to put the onus on ourselves. We're basically going to be believing and saying to other people, here's the good news, you better get everything 100% right. Well, that's really good news. That's about the worst news I could possibly hear. And you too, if you're honest. If you can look at yourself in the mirror and think, yeah, I pretty much got everything right. The church I go to does every single thing right. I do every single thing right. I don't know where to start with that. That's a whole other lesson. I don't even know how to preach that one. The Bible starts with blessed are the poor in spirit. I mean, the Sermon on the Mount does. It just starts with, you're gonna, you, it assumes you know that you're a wreck. 
That, that's, that's the axiom upon which the whole system is built. That's the self-evident thing, supposedly. So, do you know that when we, if we're indoctrinated in this transactional, quote-unquote, gospel long enough, a kind of theological PTSD <laughs> develops. There are whole websites for this, folks. People who are traumatized psychologically, emotionally, spiritually by this kind of burdensome, it is a kind of legalism. I don't, I'm not saying that's where these Jews started out, but if that's the emphasis, it, it, it ends up there. I can't tell you how many Christians I, I, I have known who reared in good families who, who are haunted by this feeling they just don't feel saved. They sin, they do something they shouldn't, and they, they, they feel like they're in, they're out, they're in, they're out, every single time. Grace is almost just a perfunctory doctrine. Yeah, of course we believe it. Now let's move on. They, don't, they haven't absorbed grace. And, and there's this kind of, the, the faith that they do have is very fear-driven. It's a problem if our faith is basically about fear. When, the, when 1 John says that perfect love, God is love, by the way, that is God. And perfect love, what does it do with fear? It casts it out. If you're basically oriented and driven by fear, that, that, a giant alarm should be going off, right? He took care of the fear. It's not about worrying about punishment every single day. He says that in the verse, 1 John 4, 18, 19. Part of it's our, our annual verse, the verse for the year. But there are so many folks who are, who are sort of traumatized by this, and they, they just, uh, you know, they're, they're robbed of all joy. They don't exude joy as they go through their days when they should because their good news really isn't that good anymore. Still called the word, and the gospel's used, but it's not the gospel. Now in chapter 2, verse 15 to 16, Paul says this, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in... He, he seems like he's in, uh, invoking a principle, like a, a general principle that he's applying to this. Nobody, we know nobody's justified by works of the law. You're justified by faith in Christ. And so he says we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because, here's the principle, by works of the law, no one will be justified. That's just where he starts. We know that, he says. So get your practice and what you're teaching and what you're emphasizing in order. That's kind of his argument in Galatians. Let me ask you this, because sometimes the way we get around the point I'm making today is to say something, yeah, but this is talking about the law of Moses. This is about the Old Testament. So yeah, you can't be justified by the Old Testament, but you're still justified by works. Two problems with that. First of all, Paul also wrote other things, like Ephesians chapter 2, where he says what about justification by works? Anybody remember? Looking for the quote. Nobody? There it is. You are saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's a slight problem, since he says the, it, it's just not true with his Holy Spirit-inspired pen. The second one is, why do you think Galatians made the canon of the New Testament? Is it because God knew that for the next two millennia and beyond until Christ comes again, maybe it's going to be 29 more millennia, we don't know. For all those eons of time, just in case there were Jews and Gentiles in a church, is, that, is it that limited? Because for the vast majority of Christian history since, it's, they, they haven't been you know, churches that were Jew and Gentile together. That was kind of an early problem, an early challenge. 
Isn't there a principle in play here that's bigger than just the relationship between these particular two ethnic groups? Isn't it a larger point about and those particular laws? Isn't he saying something, a principle of which the law of Moses is one example? That law-keeping in general, works-doing in general, is not going to justify you. The law of Moses or any other law. That's ultimately what not, not what justifies you. Now, he goes a step further, and this should alarm us even more in Galatians 5. Galatians 5, verse 2. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, if you're, if you're one of these people who accepts that, the, the circumcision attachment to Christianity, Christ will be no, of no advantage to you. Verse 3, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision. He's obligated to keep the whole law. Well, I picked that one out. He says later in chapter 6, these people who are binding circumcision, they don't even keep the whole law. They just want you to comply with what they think is right. But they're not following it all either. Nobody does. But here's the really scary thing, verse 4. You are severed from Christ, you, would who be, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. We need to be afraid of a, of a kind of de facto transactional view of the gospel in our relationship with God because guess what? It severs us from Christ. It, you detach yourself from the only thing, the only gift that can really deliver you from the problem. You're, you're distancing yourself from that to the extent that you subscribe to this transactional view. Now, one other caveat. This does not mean, and I want to be clear on this. I'm going to talk more about this in a couple of weeks. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to talk about fathers. It's Father's Day. The following week, I'm going to talk about freedom in Christ, also from Galatians in part. So we'll talk more about this idea than maybe you'll remember that probably not as two weeks. Two weeks, my sermon. They have like a three-day memory ability, I think. Anyway, um, I sometimes I'll like, be working on a sermon, and I've done this before, three or four times. I'm going through a text and writing up a sermon on it. I don't remember that I preached on it before, and I'll go look at notes, and I've got the exact same outline 17 years ago. <laughs> and I don't know if that means my brain's warped or the scriptures are just true, and I'm getting it right each time. You know? it, well, I don't know. Anyway, so we'll come back to this idea, but I, I want to make sure we understand this. My point here is not to say that if the gospel doesn't result in change behavior. It, it is supposed to result in obedience, in holiness. But it's the good news of what Christ did at Calvary that has the best chance of effecting that change in our behavior, in our thinking, in our psyche. It's not just a bootstraps, dutiful, well, here's the rules, you better deliver it. You, you won't. <laughs> the Bible tells us already, you don't even need to waste your time. It says you will not do that successfully. The engine that drives the transformation is the good news of God's grace. But he does want the transformation to happen. So, a couple of passages and we'll move on to our second big problem. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. He's interested in our works. Ephesians 2, which says we're, not, we're saved by grace through faith, not of works as any man should boast, says in verse 10... For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. It's been put like this by somebody. I don't know who originally said it. I've, re I've read it from 15 different people over the years. We will not be saved by our works, but we will not be saved without works. Because works are a gauge of the transformation. Yes, work works are essential, but it's not because they have the efficacy to save you 
to remit your sins. It's because they are evidence of what's, what God is doing once you've accepted the gospel inside you. He may be doing it slowly. He may be doing it in fits and starts. You may sometimes feel like I'm no better than I was 12 years ago, but he is not giving up on you. He who began a work in you will complete it in the day, in, in the end, in the day of judgment. That's a promise. This idea that we're in, out, in, out, we're just always in jeopardy, always on the edge, is an idea from the pit of hell, folks. You don't find that in here. Secondly, and we're going to spend a lot less time on this one, but I think it's really apropos of some of the, the cultural dynamics in our world today, especially our, our nation. A second false gospel is what we might call a tribal gospel. A tribal gospel. And what I mean by this is when we allow, when God's people, when Christians allow our particular, I, I can't think of the right term here, but I'm just going to say people group. When, when one group of, of alleged Christ followers allows their people group, their cultural or social group, subgroup, to co-opt the gospel, so that they begin to subtly redefine the gospel. They remake the gospel of Jesus in the image of some subgrouping of humanity, whether it's a nation, America, a race, an ethnicity like Jews who are doing this in Galatia, whether it's a political party, a language, the people who speak this language. Whatever human subgrouping co-ops the gospel and begins to redefine the gospel, sometimes subtly. Usually these things happen over generations. Sometimes for good reasons. Sometimes they're reactions to some other real problem. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is universal and should never be limited, circumscribed, altered, flavored, hewed by any kind of subgroup, any kind of tribe. However much you find that particular tribe winsome and pure and holy and good. It's his gospel, not yours. It's not my gospel. It's not an American gospel. It's not a Republican gospel. It's not a white gospel. It's not an English language gospel. It's not a capitalist gospel. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're not getting that on the news right now. We live in a time when a culture war is going over, over that very thing. Um, Paul says this. This is the second time where he uses this warning about these false gospels. They're jeopardizing the truth of the gospel. Only here he's talking about this kind of tribal idea. Anybody remember Cephas? He's Peter, right? One of the pillars of the church in Jerusalem, one of the apostles, one of the, the, the in, inmost three, innermost three in Jesus' 12, Peter, James, and John. That's Cephas. It's his other name. Paul says there was a time when he came to Antioch and I opposed him to his face. Paul's a new, new convert because he stood condemned. He takes on Peter. Why? For before certain men came from James, James the, the Lord's brother and the pillar of the church in Jerusalem, they'd come up from Jerusalem to Antioch. Before they came, and they were bringing this circumcision doctrine, this Judaizing doctrine, Peter was eating with the Gentiles. He had table fellowship with people of all nations. But when they came... When the circumcision party came up from Jerusalem, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. He's intimidated by their influence, their clout. You can imagine the things they're saying about him. Oh, you're impure now. You're one of those liberals. Right? Or whatever epithet he threw on him. 
and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct... How bad a problem was this, folks? Not in step with the truth of the gospel. That kind of tribal thinking, Christianity sort of run through the prism and the lens and the flavoring of my culture, my ethnic group, my heritage, my political affiliation, my country, my language. You fill it in. My class doesn't matter. When you do that, your conduct is not in step with the truth of the gospel. Am I misreading this? If so, have a conversation with me afterwards. That, that's, that, to me, that seems pretty much patently self-evident. You just got to substitute from Jew-Gentile relationship to whatever subgroups we have today and whatever else. I don't think this book is only in here in case there's a Jew-Gentile problem. One out of 99,000 churches in the next two millennia. It's for anything like this. We need to get the principle here. Don't be too wooden and too concrete in the way we're applying it. Because we'll ignore a lot of other concrete situations that are equally applicable. All right. One scholar, or several scholars actually, one, one by the name of Michael Gorman, sees this episode actually as a case of what he calls cultural imperialism. What's going on is in the name of Jesus, in the name of the gospel, certain Jewish Christians are engaged in a kind of cultural imperialism where they want their cultural comfort zone to be everybody's. And they're mixing that with ideas of holiness and purity and faithfulness. And Paul says they're not in step with the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That ought to get our attention. They want the label gospel, these Jewish Christians, but they've changed what it means. They've given it a meaning that is narrower. It's attached to the ideals of a particular culture or ethnicity. Now, how, how might that apply to us? I have a book uh, written by a historian um, named Matthew Bowman. This book came out last year. I just saw it in the Wall Street Journal book review or something and ordered it. It's called Christian. And what it is, it's a history of the way the word Christian has been used in America and how that's changed over time. Like what semantic range, what meaning filled up the word Christian. People used the label since, you know, uh, 1607 when people came to Jamestown in 1620 when the Puritans came to Massachusetts Bay and before that when all the Franciscan friars went to South, uh, you know, Southern California. People have been using Christian in North America for hundreds of years. But it's been used many, many different ways. And this is a history of how that has morphed and how each time it reflects what's going on in the decades leading up to that particular usage. He has a lot to say about right now. He brings it right up to our day. And one of the things he says in here is that the word Christian in current American uh, usage, especially in evangelical circles, often means things like this. Not always, but often. It means political conservatism, right? So that means free markets, laissez-faire, I don't want redistribution of wealth, I, I I'm, don't want any taxation, uh, there's gun control issues with that. Of course, there's the, the, the uh, question of abortion, but there's a lot more, than a lot of it has to do with straight up economics. What economic systems the Bible endorse? What view of political economy comes out of the Bible? I would say none. Now, I've heard people cherry pick things. Oh, it's, 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 it's laissez-faire free market because Solomon laid heavy taxes on people. Okay, fine. But the whole Torah has redistribution of wealth. That's what Jubilee and Sabbath are. 
They leave the edges of their, they, they forego the profit motive to take care of the poor. One of the main reasons they're going into exile is because they're unjust toward the poor and the needy. That sounds more like a Democrat. The other sounds more like a Republican. You can go in there and find anything you want because it's not talking about that. It's talking about what God's doing and how we're supposed to follow Him. And my point isn't that. I'm not trying to make some political statement here today at all. I tend to think free markets are pretty powerful, personally. It doesn't matter, but that's just for, for the record. I think they, they create a lot of, a lot of wealth uh, for countries. But I don't think the Bible is saying everything about po- present-day political conservatism is what Christian is. Another thing that the, he says it means is a kind of American nationalism in the last two or three decades. And even in the last few years, the last handful of years, he documents this exceedingly, it means white nationalism. We're not allowed to load up the gospel with our own stuff. It's not going to be good news if we do that because we don't know what we're doing. It's going to be mediocre news at best and maybe bad news. I tell you what, if you're one of the out groups who isn't in the mainstream culture, and you're kind of interested in Jesus, and you're attracted to Jesus and His love and His self-sacrificing ways, and you've seen things in some of His people that are so merciful and compassionate, and then you hear that you've got to believe all this baggage that goes with it, that's bad news for you. Here's Paul's response. Know then that it is those of faith, Galatians 3, 7, who are sons of Abraham. You're a son of faith, you're a son of Abraham. Period. And the scripture, Old Testament scripture, for seeing that God would justify the Gentiles, you know, the word Gentiles can be translated the nations, that's what it means. It's ethnoi, the ethnics. He would justify the Gentiles or the nations by faith. Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, way back in, in Genesis you know, 12 and 15 and 17 and 22, where the promise to Abraham is repeated many times in Genesis. And what were those words of that promise? In you, Abraham, and your descendants shall all the nations be blessed. The gospel was always for everybody. Male, female, black, white, Republican, Democrat, American, everybody who existed before the last five minutes of human history when America has existed. Honestly, we're a newbie on the block. What about all those other people? We read it so through our little lens and we distort it. Just like those Jews who wanted to remain the way they wanted it. They wanted Jesus, they wanted the gospel, but they wanted to control it. Bigger than that. For in Christ Jesus, he continues in chapter 3, verse 26, you are all sons of God, children of God through faith, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. That's it. Have you been baptized into Christ? Then you put him on. Here, he says, there is not Jew or Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. All right, what what, what are we to do with all this? Let me me suggest some takeaways here very quickly, and then the lesson will be concluded. Um, I want to, right here, uh, where is it? Oh, yeah, this is it, actually. I took the first one off. So we've talked about rejecting the false gospels. Let's talk about embracing the true gospel. What is the essence of the true gospel? Well, it's, it's God's grace. The whole thing comes about by divine mercy. He gave himself for our sins, Paul says right out of the gate in chapter 1, verse 4. We are called, he says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting from him who called you in the grace of Christ. The gospel call is a call of grace. 
And so if we are going to embrace the true gospel, what it means, folks, is we are bathed in grace. We are people of grace. We recognize that we responded to a call of grace. The whole thing is based on a gift. He gave himself. God so loved the world that he gave. And, and so we're beggars who've been given a gift. That's our identity. That's who we are. It's not white, black, American, you know, Russian, rich, poor, whatever else. It's, we're all, we, it's a leveling thing. We, we have so much more in common if we're human beings than we have in different, because we all are sinners who fall short of God's glory. And we're called through God's gospel in the grace of Christ. Now, let me ask you three questions. And, and these questions will help us get to the heart of whether we are embracing the true gospel. First of all, do we believe it? Real quickly, do we believe it? I've got, I got five minutes. We do believe it. All right. Will we just give lip service to it and then continue to stress what we bring, what we bring to the table? Or do we really believe it? If you don't believe it deep down, your children are going to see that as they grow up. They're going to see Christianity as a bunch, just a different set of rules. You know, having a bunch of rules is every religion. That's not what sets Christianity apart. Virtually every religion says don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal. That, that's not real. There's some ethical distinctives. Those aren't the main ones in Christianity. It is that God didn't look at us in our sin and go, I'm running from you, you disgust me and anger me. The incarnation says that God moved toward us in our sin. He came near. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Emmanuel has God with it. That's the distinctive. Do we believe that? Secondly, does our disposition demonstrate that we believe it? Your disposition, your attitude, your psychological bearing has a lot to say about what's really inside you. Are we hopeful people generally? Or are we more pessimistic and cynical? Are we joyful? Or are we glum and irritable, worried? I'm not saying there aren't times for some cynicism and some, you know, they're, they're, we weep with those who weep, and, and sometimes cynicism is honest. <laughs> but our ultimate net outlook should be the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, patience, because we know the end. And then thirdly, do we talk about it? David this morning in his class on, on, da on David, <laughs> the David of the Bible, Ended with Psalm 51, where David is bearing his soul, confessing his sins, and then says this, Lord, if you'll forgive me, he says, I will teach transgressors your ways. If you'll give me your grace one more time, I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. What good news that's really good. This is shockingly good news, by the way. What news like that do we sit on? Don't we usually naturally talk about things that we really think are, is good? You can't believe this vacation place. You can't believe this deal. You should see this new Netflix show. This car I got, oh my goodness, the way it drives, right? <clears throat> Whatever it is. This class I took, you've got to take it. The teacher's great. We, we, good news is something we naturally share. And that's what Paul had done, and that's why their church is at Galatia. All right, that's all i got one minute to spare, so appreciate your attention. We're going to sing this song, Be Strong and Courageous. Let's be people, as individuals and as a church family, who lean in to the gospel, 
The good news, and let's don't let the good news become another kind of news. While we keep the name, Jesus, Church of Christ, Gospel, but really it's bad news. It's news of fear and dread and uncertainty and a lack of confidence. Let's lean into the Gospel of Jesus and really believe and live out and share the shockingly wonderful news that came at Calvary. Amen? All right, let's all stand and sing.